Welcome to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now, won't you, as we have some fun together, as we lift our hearts up into the atmosphere and they drift across the world and some may mistake them as hostile balloons of terror, but we know that it's just our hearts out exploring Taking things in, feeling what we can while we're alive. Oh, I'm so thankful to be here with you. The miracle of radio brings Hardy White right to your doorstep, right to your kitchen, right to your car. Love you. Get out of here. 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 You're all right. Gotta get out of here. straight up faster than I can. Don't be so sure, Cap. Oh, I'm sure, Switchblade. I'll fly straight up real fast. Don't fool yourself, Mint Jelly. I'm coming for you too, Cap. You and who's Air Force House Cat? Hey, I want to change my nickname. Again? We just changed it. Yeah, but I picked a dumb one. Dumb one is good. No, I want duper fly. Like, you know, super fly, but super duper fly, but just duper fly. No. Avito. Um, no. All right. Let's go back to the original one. All right. Good idea, Toe Jam. Oh, it's so great to work as a team, to fly around in your jet airplanes together, but they don't have to be jet airplanes. We can work as a team like that in ordinary life in our little miniature Shriner cars or something that we're all going to drive around in together and coordinate it, though, like maybe golf carts if we live in one of those communities where they just drive golf carts. I wouldn't object to living in a community that all picked a certain vehicle that we're all going to use as long as it was eccentric. So I wouldn't mind retiring to a place that was just penny farthings. And you'd go down and say, I was down at the golf club and everybody's got the... You should see them trying to put their golf bags on a penny farthing. You know what those are, don't you? Those bikes that look like the symbol from the series The Prisoner. You know what that was, don't you? No? Hello? How old are you? Not 80? I'm so sorry. I forget. I've been here so long now. I'm forgetting that some things leave the collective consciousness and people don't remember them anymore. And they'll go, who was that? I don't remember who that was. And I've mentioned this many times, and I know a lot of people used to enjoy these books, but there used to be the whatever became of or whatever happened to or something like that, Richard Lamparsky, I believe was the author, author, author of these. And he would research somebody like, Say Tom Mix or something. Whatever happened there is uh, Seizu Pitts. A lot of people say Zazu. That's not correct. What's what's Seizu Pitts doing? And they'd look up. What's Larry Fine? Is Larry Fine living or is he dead? Oh, he's living, but he's stroke. He got a terrible stroke. But there he is. So they'd have maybe their original picture. So this silent star, Beto Dargo. I made that one up. So it'd be Beto Dargo. At the height of Beta Dargo's career, I feel like that's a unisex name. I'm not going to, it's a gender neutral. And now I've already forgotten it. But then, Beta Dargo, Beta Dargo at the, where they are now, which is usually either on a farm or somewhere quiet. Or if they're still famous, you don't even need it. That's the thing. Say, whatever became of uh, character actor Burt Mustin. Oh, he's still worked right up until death. It's so funny if your career, isn't it amazing you have a career that starts at 60 or something and then it goes on for 30 some years. I'd take that. Let's do it. I, right now, I'm going to start my career playing elderly bank guards. Here we go. I wouldn't mind. I don't think I'd mind. It's a lot, it might be hard work. Because you know there's a lot of hurry up and wait. 
is uh, one of they always say that hurry up and wait is the job, which I don't mind that. What does that mean? You get there, you know, get there on time, but then there's nothing to do. I, that is every job I've ever had. So I can do that. Never, if you're at a job and, and the boss hasn't given you your work to do yet, never bother them about it. Sometimes you can, if you don't remind them, they'll let you be for a long time. I've always thought that don't let the boss know. Let them know you came on time. Have a way to prove it. But then just wave, you know, don't ever bother and say, what is it? Because then that's hassling them and they don't want that. They want to see you as some, a safe employee, someone they don't have to worry about that's not going to bother them about their work. And sometimes, depending on the, I've worked for the, the state, sometimes you can all get away with doing nothing and nobody notices. That's a beautiful thing. I'm not saying that that's good. Well, I'm just saying uh, I feel, feel more human sometimes. I wish we were all growing corn, but that's the way it is. We're just going to sit here and pretend to work. Let's be honest and go garden. But that's not the way it is. And it was so in place by the time I got here. That's my excuse for not changing things. It just seems everything was so entrenched. By the time I came of age and thought, well, now it's my time to change the world, I thought, oh, I'm not changing. It's like the world's worst dirty diaper. It's like I literally just got here. I don't even, I'm not related to the baby. I'm not changing this diaper. But it turns out I am related to the baby. So maybe, maybe I could, I could change it. And then I thought, I'll go on radio. Oh, I will go on radio and then my voice will be heard around the world. It doesn't work like that. First of all, I should have taken physics. Take physics, <clears throat> then, then set your dreams up. You should always, before you dream, do your research. That's what I do. That's why I read before bedtime. So I'm not going into the dream world without doing my little bit of homework. So do your research and then, and then dream. So I thought everybody would hear me on radio and all mankind would listen to my show the way they once did to um, somebody like one of those old radio programs. The shadow or something. One of those, the shadow knows. Oh, well, tell me. What? You said the shadow knows. Tell me. Tell you what? Tell you what you know. I just know. I guess that's the shadow's thing is just knowing. And same with Professor Knowledge, who was a very po popular. You just call in and ask everything. Professor Knowledge would, would know it. Um, it's Danish. That's why you say the K. I heard. That's what I heard. But I don't, that radio, that kind of radio was gone by the time I got here. And when I got here, by the time I was listening to the radio, I heard these kind of like, everybody was a morning DJ. Because any time can be morning, really. There's the literal morning, and then there's AM, which is also the literal morning. Anything with AM in it is morning. And then PM, don't PM look like AM sometimes if you squint? And I guess that that was the overriding philosophy. They would also have, because people did a lot of drugs, and the DJ would have to excuse themselves to do drugs, in the late 70s, album rock became a thing. So they'd play the whole side of brain salad surgery or something so they could go do the drugs in the bathroom or anything. Or maybe they were just, who knows? I don't even know. Was there a food that was more popular in the 70s so people had to use the restroom more? Thinking about it, I think people, Mexican food got a bit more popular. Uh, who knows? I guess it's just more food. It's not what kind of food to eat that makes you go. Yes, it is. Okay, I mean, bran muffins. So what does this have to do with radio? Well, you don't think about having to do a bowel movement as something that affects radio or drugs, having to do your drugs, but I think it, I think it does. I think a lot of things that happen in the general culture affect radio and then they're reflected in it just like a mirror or the water supply or something you can take you test it i like to do that i take a little test of the collective conscience or the whatever the zeitgeist and then i think oh good there's only 0.001 parts per million of irony or something like that that i'm looking for and i, I go we can we can do better you know but that's good that's still safe we're still at safe levels. They'll always tell you that with drinking water. You're all right. There's just, we're just this shy. We're just on this side of, of it being poison. <laughs> you don't want that. 
But that's funny. That's how it does work. There's a, there's a, uh, what do you call it, Sorites principle or something, to heap principle paradox involved in some things, like throwing up from bad food. That is all about bacterial load, isn't it? It's not about bacteria. It's about how much bacteria. Is it enough to bring it back? It's like, wouldn't that be one? Like, what's the back? You could bring back the series Firefly if you had enough bacterial load. No, you couldn't because some of the actors are dead. But you, uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a heat principle. How much bacteria, how much we got of something before you can, what is it, tip the scale? But only tip the scale rhetorically. Ah, it's now a heap. Ah, it's now omit. You know, so that's the way I, I look at, at the world. It's all degrees, isn't it? I don't clearly don't have one. So I'm not in the game. I'm in the game. I'm in the game a little bit. Anything, everything is in the game, isn't it? Like, let's say you're playing a game of Monopoly with friends. Everything's in there. Everything can affect it. Can it? Like there's a gas leak. That's going to affect the game. Something like that happened, a loud explosion outside or an earthquake that literally will rearrange the game board. So everything, everything has a, an effect. Do you know that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, that that's against the law? I did not know that. But technically, it's still on the books from a long time ago. And it's funny because they have, they have carnival and everything where people wear... Uh, Butt floss, they wear bikinis that are so, don't even cover their bottom. I'm sorry if that's, I don't try to be offensive. It's just a human butt. But they'll say, hey, look at, you know, it's spring. And so, uh, regard, regard the moon. And uh, that's something, I'll tell you. I like reading about other cultures, especially if it's just pictures. I'll be read lots of books. It exposed me to all, so I was, I poured over those National Geographics when I was a young person. I go, oh, this is showing me so much of the world. Interesting to me. Look at humans. What crazy creatures they are. What wonderful shapes and sizes. I love them all. I seem to be moved to tears by all of them. So it's, it's nice to explore like that. And I hope that this show is like that for you. Oh, it's like a. Not a, you don't want to go on, I like the kind of safari they have at the theme park. We are not, I was just going to say something. The irony is going to get, exceed one point something parts per million in a minute. Because I was about to say that the, the theme park safaris that you go on don't actually damage nature. But of course they do, don't they? Just, it's just not as obvious. You're not, you're not shooting a hippo, but... Look what you just look what you've done. Look what you've just done. I know that there's a certain uh, uh, theme park that has uh, people don't talk about it much anymore, but they got a vulture problem. If you live anywhere, you're gonna get there's so many wonderful species that would love to be there with you by your side and say, let's do this together. I think uh, black vultures, turkey vultures are like that. They say, hey, we can. Would you want to form a sort of partnership? And crows are like that, and seagulls. Uh, seagulls are like, we're all in this together, aren't we? Uh, look, throw something in the air, and we'll show you something. The, um, don't do that. They will take an eyeball. It's amazing. It's beautiful. That's the last thing you see. It's like, how are they hovering like that? And then their little lip, their stony lips, I call them. Little beaks come down and will snatch your eyes out. Pirates know this. When I talk like that, someone say, oh, Hardy's being dark. I don't think that's... That's dark um, because I was, I think we were all introduced to the ideas of birds snatching your eyes out very early. I don't know what kind of children's lit you were shown, but that was early on for me, I think. Right in, almost in the crib, I don't know, I had a, this big book of British nursery rhymes. It was horrifying and that was read to me. And I don't know whether they think you're not going to understand them or something, but oh, there's dismemberment and all sorts of things and people, oh, all they... They bear their, uh, their moral behinds, too, a lot of times. So just the behavior is terrible. They'll be selfish or something like that. And I don't know whether, what the lessons were. I think the lessons were, you know, be cynical because this is what you're up against. You know, all these 
royalty eating pastries and people living in pies and all that kind of thing. I don't remember explicitly, but it was pretty bad. And children, I feel like there was, you know, kinder toting kind of lit or something. But it teaches you a lesson. It shows you the world. And there were also beauty. A lot of beauty was uh, shown as well. I, I saw the Three Stooges and everything like that. And the best of mankind was said, let's show you our beautiful art, show you what we could do, how, how gorgeous it could be, like the Flintstones. I have resentment for that. I do, because I, I feel like I, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on in, in animation. You know, why is this so good and this so bad? And why are they, were they doing, was some, were the people that do the Flintstones, were they under dress? Because I worried, you know, it was just like, is this Soviet or something? Is this why they couldn't, like, you know, they couldn't, they were in fear for their lives. So they could only draw so many cells, you know, per, uh, per second or something. Okay, you know, I understand that now. It can't be very detailed. But that's not the case, is greed. You know, they ran out of the cinema quality cartoons and so well we've got to make some for children they go well it's only children so it doesn't have to be they do this with cereal it doesn't have to be a hundred percent food you can put something else in there because what are they gonna what are they gonna say are they gonna protest they don't have the vocabulary oh this doesn't right so they'll just go spit it out and they'll just make the parents angry and they'll force more of it into them but what they're saying is this isn't food but I think that's good, too, because I think a lot of people that get ground up actual vegetables are spoiled later. And then they can't eat things when they're on road trips. You ever notice that? You would drive them somewhere and go, well, oh, man, I'm famished. Let's pull into one of the three options we have, all of which are poisonous, basically. And they'll go, oh, no, I can't eat any of that. And they go, what do you mean you can't eat any of that? We're monkeys. We can eat, literally can eat anything, garbage. You're just being fussy, you know? Get it, you'll get it, you'll keep it down. It's all about bacterial load, my good friend. So just stuff it in your gob and we'll be on our way because we're just humans. And I, uh, what was that? What helped me that? There was the uh, Canterbury Tales or something. It's like people, you don't even have to read it. You just say, just tell people it all takes place at a bus station and people are sharing their stories and you go, ugh, I don't even think I want to, I get you, I understand now. And then they'll, They'll get it, and they go, humans are crazy. They are monkey angels. It's this guy. What if angels threw their poo? That's, that's humans right there. And you don't know what to make of that. You know, what is that? What's that stain on your beautiful, white, pristine wing? I don't know. Things got heated at the dumb bar that I go to. Angels go to bars. It shouldn't have to. So I was going to do this thing today. Now, this is very interesting to me. And, and you'll be like, oh, no, don't. But I did a live show for the uh, WFMU Marathon. That's what you're listening to. I don't, I'm not, that's so funny because that was, I volunteered that. I'm not obligated to say the name of the station during the show like that. You're not allowed to. No, you can't. I can say it all, all I want. But just you have to at some point. You've you got to tell people you can't hide behind some sort of anonymity. I can't tell what I'm listening to. The needle is like between the say the name of the station so I can sue. And then I can't, you can't say fake ones either, I don't think. Can you? I don't know. I've tried. You're listening to POOB, but that's not even real call letters. So I don't think I'd get in trouble. Um, so I was going to, I did this live show there at Monty Hall, which is one of my favorite venues to play. It's the only one I play. It's the only one that asked me, except I, this year I asked, because I've done it past years. I thought they'd say yes, and they did, and I, oh. so I did a show for, during the marathon in March, and uh, now in, in the past, we've broadcast them, the, vi the video and the audio together. Now, this year, I, some years I go under, and I don't do the show long enough, all right, and this year, I went over. So I did it too long. So it can't be, we can't do it in the, just the hour like that. So I was going to do just the audio broken up and then maybe the video released next year as a premium. So then you can watch that in your living room with your friends, have people over, and you have like almost a year to plan it, which I think would be lovely, you know. And um, uh, then you can, you don't have to cater it, you can cook for it. 
You can cook and put things up in cans, and then they'll be ready then. You can make beer for that event. Starting now, be ready then. How about that? All these things you can do. Make a baby. Make some babies just for the event. And um, they say, wow, that's crazy. They were, all, they were all born on the FMU Marathon release date of my next year premium, my 2024. I mean, knock on wood, God, God willing, should, should God tarry, as the people who believe in end times say, Oh, yeah, I hope he does, Terry. <laughs> Can we say that? Are we allowed to say that? Or we go, no, we want the end. Which do we want? Because I'm all for God, Terry. If God wants to take some time destroying the earth, I'm for that. Let's think this through. Right? No big decision like that. No, no one's ever benefited from any kind of rash thinking like that, especially a big thing that can't be undone. Let's think it over for maybe millions and millions more years. And then if you want to destroy the earth, well, you do it. But I want to, I was thinking of, there's a couple things I want to do. Not a lot. I don't believe in uh, bucket lists. Um, it's just too much pressure. All of a sudden it changes too, you know? Those of us who have just rub-on tattoos, you know, I can't commit to anything, really. I know I'm going to change. I know I'm going to go, here's my list. Oh, next day I go, Can we, I need to change number 11 because I don't want to do that anymore. But, you know, so who knows? Because, like, what if you're, oh, oh, eat, all, eat a bunch of corn on the cob and then you don't have any teeth anymore. So, well, cross that one off or something like that. That's a weird example. I was trying to think of something. But, you know, if you, you're hearing or your eyesight might go or, or something or uh, you need something that you need a toe for and now you don't have a toe. So there you go. Tap, tap dancing. You can do anything you want as long as you change your definition of what that is. Then you'll be able to meet your dream. Oh, <clears throat> if you met your dream coming down, the, excuse me for clearing my throat, allergy season is all year long for me. As you know, I struggle to uh, breathe this fetid air of planet Earth. Oh, it is not crystal clear like my home planet, the moon Gansadine of Galindasan. Whatever became of him, anyway. Remember? I remember, uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm right on the tip of my tongue. Um, something Johansson, a boxer. Jorgen, his name is wrong, but I was reading one of those books one time. Oh, and the poor sight. He was, you know, um, Ingmar Johansson. Ingmar, Ingmar Johansson. He was a boxer, briefly. And um, so whatever came of that guy, it's never good when you think, whatever came of that MMA guy? Uh-oh. You know, what's he doing now? The guy got hit in the head a bunch? Mm-hmm. Mm, you're never going to believe what happened. So, uh, but this fella, you know, uh, I guess that was the early days of people didn't really consider what happens if you're a conditioned athlete who no longer is a conditioned athlete. And it's pretty shocking. You go, oh, I get it now. You have to keep it up or you don't look like that anymore. So that's very interesting. I still follow a lot of bodybuilders that I was interested in in the 70s. Um, you know, Arnold made it popular. And I don't you know, give me that new muscle magazine, mama. So that's awfully weird. All right, just do it. So, we're, but um, some of those people are gone, and some of them have kept exercising. I mean, they've they've toned it down a little bit, so they don't. But uh, they're just still fit and wonderful, and that's great. Boy, if you can get out there every day and not die, do it any way you want to do it. So that's what I say. Why would you say that? Because I don't know you. What am I gonna? Why would have it's so weird to have a really strong, most violent opinion about other people's actions when you don't even really know them. And, or even if they exist or something. Somebody gives all the kind of, people get worked up on hearsay. You can go up, you tell somebody a story and you can get them up, you can get so worked up they go grab their halberd or something then go, I'm kidding, it didn't happen. Now try to get them back down because they go, yeah, but it could have. It's too late, you know? It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's like, we're ready. I'm ready. I have a thing that I think is true, and I'm geared up and ready 
to do it and all I want is an excuse. And that's a, a strange world that we live in, that those people are waiting for their, uh, for their dreams to be confirmed by you. And sometimes they're wicked nightmares and you do it accidentally. But, you know, you can uh, learn. How do we learn then? Run away to deal with other humans. Run away, run away from them. Uh, well, it takes time and patience. Run away. And compassion and understanding. Run, 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 run from humans always. No, don't do that. That's half of me says that. But listen, uh, life can offer beautiful experiences. So I want to play the, the first part of this uh, show at, at Monty Hall. Would you like to hear that? Yes, you should have piped it more. Why? 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 Don't you want to walk into a restaurant and it's not, you don't know it's corn night or something? There's a, the reason I say that, there's a restaurant near my house that's like, it's corn days. <laughs> they do that. And you go, no way. And all of a sudden they have, they always have corn, but then it's better during corn days. So I guess it's in season and it's not the corn from the back room just laying around in a pile. This is my March show. Now, this is a one-person show. This is more like, what is it? Is it like a stand-up routine? No, you can tell because no one's laughing. And then the first few minutes now, I'm going to do a DVD commentary because there's some visual stuff. And it's just going to be like listening to a, a Shelley Berman record or something. I have these comedy records from when I was a kid. And you go, I guess he's doing something like touching his face funny because people are laughing, but I am not hearing a joke. And so I'm going to just give you like it's a DVD commentary. So uh, we're just going to hear maybe the first uh, 30 minutes or so of my March show, No Tim Conway for Sergeants, uh, which I did at Monty Hall and which was attended by some people. You'll hear, I don't know whether to tell you how many, because you'll hear how many are laughing. And I, I, if I say, oh, that's all of them, you'll say, well, that's an awfully small crowd. Or if I say, we just, it was lots of people there, but most of them were very serious but you'll figure it out. I like the intimate. It was just like talking to friends. And uh, I like that the best. So here it is. Now, uh, Greg, WFMU Greg uh, introduced me. I never know whether to say somebody's. Y'all know his name. Greg H. And um, he uh, is a, a friend. And uh, I think he's wonderful. And he was introduced me. Because um, I guess Ken couldn't Ken couldn't make it or couldn't be he was busy or he was hungry or something I don't know whether the he's done it in past years but I guess he's lost interest I just can't, I'm kidding him he doesn't he won't hear this so uh, but uh, Greg introduced me and I thought it was wonderful and so uh, we'll play that and then I'll talk you through a little bit of uh, what's happening. Greg's on stage. Shemp jive, everybody. Welcome to Monty Hall, uh, here at WFMU. If you haven't heard, we are smack dab in the middle of our annual fundraiser. We have a few pledge cards here on the stage after the show. If you want to fill one out and uh, donate a couple bucks, or a lot of bucks, that would be awesome. Um, Monty Hall has been closed for the last three years for obvious reasons. We are so thrilled to be back in business and especially to bring back Hardy's annual show. Tonight's presentation is called No Tim Conway for Sergeants. And uh, I could not be more pleased to introduce WFMU's spiritual advisor, Hardy White. Now, uh, I come out from uh, down below, from coming in from the back, the basement stairs come out kind of the back of the theater. I'm getting on the stage, I'm guessing. I don't remember. This is what I remember. And uh, I've got a bag of clothes. I'm here to recapture a feeling. I have a beautiful memory 
filled with joy, and I'd like to go looking for it again. I've been here before. This is not my first time. But I'm not sure I can get back what I remember. I don't know if I'm thinking about the real past, an imaginary past, or magnetic past, which is just slightly different than real past. Oh, that, that went over well, that first joke. Yeah, they, they seem to be enjoying it. Going to <laughs> they didn't know it was a joke. So now I'm changing my clothes. I've got, uh, I take off my purple Kurosawa, Kurosawa hat that um, Scott from Minneapolis had just given me, and I'm putting on a jacket. And now I'm kneeling on some shoes and lowering the mic. The year is 1987. I, beloved American comic actor Tim Conway, am starring in my one-man play, Dorf, the Man Who Knelt Upon Shoes. It examines the interwar political climate in Europe, the arrogance of prediction, the experiential nature of existence, and most importantly, it's a metaphysical examination of Tim. The illusion of kneeling upon shoes goes back for generations in theater. The actor's legs are hidden, submerged, subterranean, hidden like the lower 50% of the statues of Rapa Nui. And his legs then, braced by earth all around or lumber, remain rigid while he can perform comic contortions. I can't do it right now because I am merely kneeling upon shoes, not the illusion of kneeling upon shoes. I hope I haven't ruined anything for you. This play, also known as Tim and the Conways, consists of three acts. The first act we'll call act one. The second act we will call act two. The third act we will call act one. Because even though it is the third act, it's essentially the first act, but if it came after act two, Assisting me on stage is character actor Vincent Schiavelli. He will be playing my younger sister, and he has just come back from his job and has remembered that he had a prophetic vision of the past into the future. And he's telling me, his older sister, older brother, elderly mother, Tim. Remember all that we once were, all that we wanted, how you have destroyed that, Tim. At any given time, we are a cross-section of ourselves, but what we really are is our whole selves stretched over time. Oh, Tim, how you have cut that up. Why? Thank you, Vince. Tim Conway's film crew asked for permission to film on a golf course, but they did not ask for permission to dig a three-by-three three hole on the putting green, which they did without telling anybody they would. Imagine how the greenskeeper felt. It must have felt like the person who rented their donkey to director Robert Brisson for his donkey death movie, O Hazard Balthazar. <laughs> Sometimes we pay a steep moral price, an emotional price, for art. And there we have done it again. Now, you are speaking as if you are a narrator. Are you Tim Conway or are you a narrator speaking about Tim Conway? Yes, <laughs> I am. I was born Thomas Daniel Conway on a cold December morning in 1933 in Willoughby, Ohio, home of a World War I chemical weapons plant 
that manufactured the organo-arsenic suffocating and blistering compound lewisite, which smells vaguely of geraniums. It has the faint odor of geraniums. If you smell the faint odor of geraniums, it may be the last thing you smell before your lungs are seared with lewisite. From there, I went on to star in McHale's Navy, a sitcom about war. And then on The Carol Burnett Show, where I played elderly or foreign people or other people whose mere existence is a nuisance to us. And then my heightest masterpiece, Dorf. Six years before I was born, I wrote a book under the pseudonym J.W. Dunn, and it was called An Experiment with Tim. Now, my idea was that there are layers of Tim's, so our lives are not just a single cross-section. No, no, that's, that's not all of the picture. We are stretched out over time, a long worm from our beginning to our end. So the first Tim Conway is like a, a, a Duchamp painting, a nude descending a staircase. You see all of the Tim worm, all of the world line that is Conway. And then in its wholeness above it is a Tim Conway that can see the entirety of that lower level Tim Conway. And above him, yet another Tim Conway that can see the whole. And this layers, these levels, they go on until you reach some kind of stimularity. <laughs> A oneness of Tim. And so, you may be asking yourself, which Tim Conway are you? Well, I am the Tim Conway played by Hardy White and I'm trying to recapture a feeling because I am driving to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, the city named for a retired dictator. Cincinnati, the city whose airport is in Kentucky. <laughs> Cincinnati, where in 1884 they rioted 10,000 strong because of a courthouse verdict they did not like, leaving 400 injured and 56 dead. Cincinnati, home of J&H Productions. Cincinnati, where James Brown recorded Funky Drummer. Cincinnati, whose chili is odd. Cincinnati, why does your chili smell like pie? <laughs> Cincinnati, home of the Cincinnati Art Museum, which is why I am going there, because like I said, I'm trying to recapture a feeling I had, this feeling of joy in the past, and I wanted to chase it again. You know, you see something that you love, it affects you, and you want to repeat it all the time. Let's go to vacation there every single year, right? You keep chasing it, and I did this with a painting at the Cincinnati Museum. And the painting was John Singer Sargent's Girl with Fan. Now, it's a different kind of, I have a picture that my friend took at the Calder racetrack of me and Shecky Green. And I call that Shecky Green with Fan. But, <laughs> but this is not that. This is a, a painting, almost life-size painting, of, of a beautiful young woman. And she's holding it. She's holding what I think people think are fans, but I don't know if it's a fan because I read that it might be a bundle of glass tubes. See, it's Venetian. It's Venetian glass, and she was a, a bong worker. She made these handmade Venetian bongs, <laughs> which were very, uh, very popular. And she put all sorts of glasswork. You could get a skull or anything like that, which is, <laughs> which in that context was a sort of memento mori device, and you say, oh, every time I take a, a, a rip off this bong, I realize that my heavenly soul belongs to God, and that I must use my time here judiciously. So this painting says all those things to me, but the first time I saw it, the first time I went to the museum, I was astounded. I saw this painting. It's a large painting. I walked into an alcove. I wasn't expecting it. I sort of know 
who John Singer Sargent was, but I wasn't that familiar. And I looked at this, and it isn't only a beautiful painting of a beautiful person. It's also the way it's painted, the immediacy, the brush strokes, the light, the way the, the paint is almost mixed on the brush. It's like drawing with paint. I've never seen anybody able to do that with such wizardry, really. And it was the painting method, and it drew my eye to everything beautiful in that scene. And I was moved, and it captured me. Now you say, oh, it sounds like you know quite a bit about art, yes. And that is because <laughs> I have a little experience. Uh, in high school, I purchased a paint set, and I recreated uh, the album cover of a Frank Zappa album <laughs> in oil on canvas. And everyone said to me, that's a gorgeous portrait of Vincent Schiavelli. And I realized that painting is very hard and you should quit if you paint. Or lower your standards. Or take lessons. Well, I thought none of those are really for me. But I figured out that I could look at other people's art, other people's painting, and that was uh, just as exciting to me. So I became hooked. I became addicted to art and painting. I visited all the great museums of the world. I went to the uh, Mort Walker Beetle Bailey Museum in Boca Raton, Florida. <laughs> I went to the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> I went to the, so there's a museum at Sunken Gardens, and I think it's like in Tampa. Now, Sunken Gardens is one of those old-time Florida attractions where there's really nothing there. So, oh, come and see house plants and smell orange blossoms. And it's one of those places. But since then, they have built a tribute to Jesus, which has nothing to do with Florida, really. But they made to say, hey, you know, let's combine some of our hobbies, house plants, Jesus. And they made a Jesus museum. And the statues are sort of right between, like, uh, just between like a really good Madame Tussauds Wax Museum and department store mannequins. <laughs> Somewhere in that range. And they're all, they're dressed, one of them is Jesus. I don't know which one, it's like, which one, which one's George Clinton? But it's probably the one on, um, on the cotton. I think he was the one on the cotton. But that's not such, he said, well, that's not much of an art museum. That's not the art part. The art part is that there's a gift shop. And the gift shop, you walk out of the Jesus Museum, and like the first thing you see is a, a, a mug shaped like a, like a booby. <laughs> and it'll be like, welcome to floor titty or something. It would just be stupid. And I don't know, there used to be, a, I think since then that kind of humor has diminished, but it used to be all oh, that, you know, the ashtray looks like a butt or something. <laughs> And the thing, and I'm, I'm not offended because, well, I don't th I think Jesus would be, uh, just baffled, you know, I don't know if he'd be offended. I can't tell what that is. Well, you don't want to, it's all right, Jesus. <laughs> it's, just, it's a cup. I want that to be my grail. No, no, we'll get it. We'll get you a good one. I saw museums in, in Berlin. I saw museums in uh, New York City. I saw uh, museums all around the, uh, the Bigfoot Museum in Colorado. It was very convincing. They have, a, they have a poo. They have a Bigfoot poo. And the reason, only reason I mention it is because it's kind of how we imagine our time worm over time. And, and, but, I, it, but it was in Paris where I discovered the weeping effect. I was walking in the to the Centre Pompidou, and I was all filled with excitement for art, and I couldn't wait to see the paintings. And outside of the building, I saw an artist doing portraiture. And I thought, I shall have my portrait made. And I stepped over, and I said, I would like to have Jibouget uh, Astérien portraiture. I don't know what I said. Um, so, and I had my, my portrait made, and he chose to exaggerate a lot of my features. <laughs> in a way I wasn't familiar with. And, 
I know my nose doesn't, my nose is fine, isn't it? No, you know, what's wrong with my eyebrows? They're enormous and everything, and I didn't, and what do you like to do? Well, I guess bowl, he had me bowling. <laughs> my head was very large, and I was like, I, I love that. You can keep that one. I let him keep, because I know a lot of times artists don't want to build, paint something for you, and then you'll go, I know you secretly want to keep it, so go ahead and do that. And I'm, I'm sure this fella has a million of those at home of just different people he's met and everything who've rejected them. <laughs> then I turned and I saw on a bench an old Tim Conway. I thought, I don't recognize that Tim Conway. That Tim Conway must be on sort of a different level. If that's a Tim Conway above me, then he may know about my life. So I approached him. I said, old Tim Conway, you are a Tim Conway, a level above me. I would like to know my future. He said, the Fovis will make you cry. I said, what do you mean, old Tim? He said, the Fovis is, I said, I know who they are. It's an art movement. And the, I said, I know. It's an art movement in the beginning of the 20th century. And they believed that color didn't have to be confined to reality, that it was too powerful, it was too emotive, that it spoke to the soul, and it doesn't have to be realistic. You could use it in a, in a way that was evocative. You could, you could stir something in the soul. <gasps> I said, you're getting me right now, old Tim. I don't even know if I need to see it. You know, your words are mesmerizing. He said, yes, you will cry. You will cry as if you had seen the future. I said, what do you mean? Is my future cursed? He said, no. He said, no one can see all the joy and sorrow at once. It all must be cut up like a child's dinner. Like a child's lunch, I said. He said, yes, you get it. I said, like a child's snack. Yes, if it were like a weenie. He said, yes, and you cut it up in pieces, otherwise it'd choke upon it. He says, now you yes, now you're getting it. I said, thank you. That's amazing. I must ask you one thing, and I looked at his knees, and his knees were worn. And I thought he'd been kneeling, and I said, old Tim, your knees are worn. Why is that? And he said, my knees are worn from prayer, and also I install flooring. <laughs> I said, damn, I know that's rough. I go, yeah. I said, you know, you like hit one of the rug things with your knee. He goes, yeah, do that. You got to stretch it out the wall to wall. I go, oh, Tim, I don't want to be you, Tim Conway. I'm glad that you're you, Tim, and I'm me, Tim. And now I'm going to go in, and I'm going to weep at the Fovis paintings. And I did. Oh, Tim. Oh, Vincent, would you like to say something? Yes, if it's okay. I would like to share with you something that is my passion, something that is like art to me, something that moves me the way that paintings move you, and that is food, and particularly something I find to be exquisite in its simplicity, and that is the elegant marinara sauce. It begins with tomatoes. The basis, nature, reality itself, the tomato, not any tomato will do. It has to be a San Marzano tomato, a San Marzano tomato, because they are floral. Oh, and fragrance and fruity. And the texture, the texture is smooth and silky. And we, we take the tomato and we look at its gorgeous redness, the redness of blood, the redness of life, and we crush it between our hands. Must use our hands. You can wash your hands if you want before or after. Don't. But tomato is not going to hurt your hands. People soak in it when they get skunked. It's not. You eat it, you put it inside of you, it's beautiful, rub it on yourself, rub it on your hands, and you put the tomato in now. 
We must add the edges. The edges as if we were drawing the human form. We trace the outline of it. What the sharp edges of garlic and onion we add to it. Just very little. We don't need, there aren't many edges on the human form. It's to give it some dimension, to define it, to constrain the beauty a bit, and then we need to fatten it up a bit, don't we? Let's give it some literal fat, some, some, some pork fat. Maybe Oh, maybe you won't want that. That's all right. How about some olive oil? Then everything in it has grown. Well, pigs grow, but they, they don't grow on very old 2,000-year-old trees. How horrifying. The pigs... All the squealing pigs from I would never I would never eat them and love them. And then comes the part that's that's indescribable and ineffable, the magic part. The part of heating over time. We combine it, we we heat it and they, they meld. Everything comes together in a composition and suddenly they aren't single notes anymore. It's a chord. It's a chord. It's a painting. It isn't a single color. It's many things. It's a feeling. And then, eventually, it all melds together. So, salt. I forgot the salt. Salt. The earth. We ground it. Add some salt. The salt of the earth just like New Jersey people are salt of the earth. <laughs> it's one of those compliments that's, you know, salt also burns and wrecks, destroys cars, <laughs> raises the blood pressure to dangerous levels. But in our sauce, it completes us. And then we have it. And that is something that can be put over pasta? <laughs> yes. Yes. I like to make my own cavatelli, and I will use a, a, a butter knife to sort of roll it. Ah, cavatelli. We, on The Sopranos, we, we would say gabadell or something on The Sopranos, because I was on The Sopranos, Tim Conway. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vincent. He loves food just the same way that I love art, you know, and performing. That, too. I remember I was watching TV, it was like 1986, and the Cal Burnett show was over. I'd been off it for a while, and I'm just sitting there watching TV, and I'm watching Johnny Carson, and Teresa Ganzel is on. Now, she's, uh, she, I think she became a regular after a while on The Tonight Show, but she's promoting a show that she's in with Cal Burnett, and it's kind of a parody thing, and it's a miniseries called Fresno. And it's a takeoff on Dallas and Dynasty and all that. And Charles Grodin is in it. And all those Dabney Coleman and Dabney Grodin. And every, all those really dry comedians. Were, if you mean by dry, not particularly funny. But there's something who's like, oh, I love them. I love the not funny people in those wacky situations and how they react and look uncomfortable. And so it was one of those shows. And she's on there. And he does the typical thing where he says, oh, you know, uh, I, uh, if I remember correctly... Uh, last time you were here, you were trying to sell a car. And she says, oh, yeah. You don't remember anything, Johnny. You don't remember the last time she was on selling a car. How many hundreds of guests do you have, you phony? That's something they ask you backstage. You say, well, do you remember what you are talking about the last time you were on? And she goes, no, not really. Well, a car or something. All right. So that's what they do. And he doesn't remember anything. He's just sitting there thinking about his failed relationships. He's thinking about his alcohol problem. He's thinking about, what am I done? What is this life? How empty this is? I only see a cross-section, a slice of these people. This is not the whole of their lives. This is something that they'll be on and they will disappear. So many people come and go from that old Tonight Show. And you don't even see them ever again. I've talked and thought about them all the time. I was just thinking about the other day about Richie Barathe, the karate man. He went on in a, a flag, American flag gi with his long hair and talking about how you can chop things up with your hands and everything, how everything's a weapon. And then he attacked Johnny with a pencil. And then he, then he was going to chop through a bunch of bricks that were on fire. And he lit them on fire, and he chopped them. And the, the, just when you, it's like when you, when you kill an elk, and then the spirit of the 
elk goes in you. He chopped these bricks and then he immediately caught fire. <laughs> As the spirit of the flaming bricks entered him. And, um, and then his, he had an entourage, but they just started making sort of like Jerry Lewis noises. <laughs> and kind of panicking a little bit. And finally they grab a fire extinguisher and uh, put him out. But you know, tick tock. <laughs> and uh, so Johnny comes up and he goes, oh, that was really, you know, dramatic. Shakes his hand, which is now flaking off. You know, he's burned his hand. Oh, and thank goodness R Richie was a pretty hardcore alcoholic. So he's all right. He didn't, he didn't feel much. Didn't live long, but uh, he was, boy, tough, tough guy. And um, we just see that little slice there, and he seems, he seems tough and durable, but uh, I'm sure he screamed like crazy afterwards. What you see isn't everything. You know, we see a, a, just a small part of things. So I'm headed to the Cincinnati Museum to recapture the experience. Now, I've gone to this museum a lot of times, and that first experience was transcendent, but I've been there since, and yeah, they have other things, and they have visiting exhibits. One time I saw uh, uh, an exhibit of a designer, uh, Rudy Gernreich, who I like a lot, and he designed the Monokini, which is a, like a topless one piece. And we said, well, what's this part for? I don't know, <laughs> holding up the bottom part. And I was gonna wear one tonight, uh, because, and I thought, well, it'll be awkward for the first few minutes, and then you acclimate. And then I thought, no, some things you never get used to. But I, I've felt that, and there's other beautiful paintings at this Cincinnati Museum. You'd be, you'd be surprised, you know, for a, for a town whose chili smells funky. They, they really do have some sophistication in art, and there's Rothko's, and there's a mother well that I stare at. And uh, if there's too much going on in a painting, I have difficulty. But if I can, if I can see all of it, I'm all right, because I like to feel things, you know, I, I want to let it in. I don't want it to be uh, just something that I move on to. There's a, there's a way of going to museums where you, you do this, and you kind of look. And maybe you stay in front of one. Well, what I do is I rush to my favorite painting, have an emotional mental breakdown, <laughs> and then I leave. <laughs> so that's usually, so I kind of browse. I make sure everything is where it's supposed to be. And I go, and I, there's certain types of paintings and styles I don't like. I have opinions, even though I don't have knowledge, because life is short. Because if you wait, you know, I used to fault people for having appealing, uh, opinions about stuff they didn't know anything about, but I thought, well, what if they're going to die tomorrow? You know, they don't have time to look into everything, but it feels, it feels good to really have an opinion about something. You know, you can't go around saying, I don't know. So I just, I have them sort of arbitrarily, you know, and people go, why, do you, why don't you like a certain comedian? And I'll go, I just picked him, you know. <laughs> I probably would. I probably would like the person a lot. So I was uh, wandering through the museum, and I was trying to go there a long way because I'm trying to postpone it a little bit. I wanted to stretch things out, and uh, so finally I sauntered up to the alcove in which I know Lady with a Fan resides, and I looked up at, at my lady, and she had shrunk, and she wasn't a lady anymore. And I thought that is not my painting. It was gone. It wasn't there. I looked around. I thought I was in the wrong place. Never, did you ever come back to your house and everything has been burgled and nothing is empty? And you go, oh, well, maybe it's the wrong house. <laughs> and you think, well, no, that's my grandmother's wedding ring on the floor. So it must be ours. So this was one of those situations. And I finally realized, no, it's really, really gone. Act two, 
which you're going to have to wait till uh, you're going to have to wait till next week for. Oh, you are listening to Miracle Nutrition, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, ninety-one point nine in Rockland County, in New York City, New York, and online at WFMU.org worldwide. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again next week. feeling for the jazz style provides the results of his own search. Mr. Ahmad Jamal.
This portion of Black Omnibus starring James Earl Jones is brought to you by Anheuser-Busch Incorporated, St. Louis, Tourism, Budweiser.